Well, good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Um, I am not Richard Dahlstrom. Uh, my name is Jeff Cuse. I am a professor at Seattle Pacific University and attend here at Bethany, have for a few years with our family. Um, and it's a real pleasure to be sharing God's word with you this morning. The theme that we've been coming through is, if those of you watching online as well as here in the sanctuary have been following, uh, we've been working through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount as found in Matthew uh, chapter 5. We've been bracketing out various parts of these beatitudes, these words of Jesus and charge of Jesus to how we become shaped for the sake of the kingdom. This morning, uh, we'll be focusing in on what it means to be meek, which is an interesting idea in this day and age. So I'd like to begin by reading the passage in Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, uh, beginning with verse 1 through 11, and then I'll pray over this for us, and then we'll get in to see what God has in store for us this morning as we look at this together. Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 1, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and he, after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be, receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So let's take a deeper look at what Jesus is teaching us, particularly on this idea of meekness, inheriting the earth together. So let's pray over God's word and have the Holy Spirit inform it for us. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we give you thanks uh, for the gift of your word. And Lord, through your Holy Spirit, bind your holy word to our hearts. Bind them as if they were hoops tighter than steel that keep close to us, become a light unto our path, a guide for our feet, and inhabit our very being so we can be shaped and formed in the way of the meek and the way of the earth. Help us to hear your word deeply this morning, to live as your people for the sake of your kingdom. And all God's people said, Amen. So in this passage, as Jesus kind of opens this challenge for us, he is asking us as God's people to consider this way that he is putting forward to live into the world. And this is quite a world we're now living into, isn't it? As we come into this weekend at this very time in history, uh, the world is changing in ways that many people didn't expect. There is celebration and there is disappointment. Just last weekend... Uh, I was at a retreat of faculty gathered from around the country, and I was one of the keynotes for this event that was organized by a think tank in Washington, D.C., and they were gathering faculty from a number of campuses around this question. Is America coming apart, addressing economic, social, and ideological stratification in the United States? Now, there's a cheery title uh, to, to bring people around and gather around, and as we gathered for this weekend... We had economists, political scientists, historians, sociologists asking that question, is the nation coming apart at the seams? Are we seeing a particular point in history in a distinct way of separation, of divide, of, of moving away from each other? 
And these very bright people are in the room, and they are asking the what now question. And this is, remember, this is a week before the inauguration that just happened on Friday, right? So there's a lot of speculation in the room. And over the course of the weekend, people are focusing their attention on analytics, polling data. Economists are putting charts up that, as a theologian, I have no idea what numbers are anyway. And they're putting them up there and showing us all the various moves and things that are happening across our country. And as the weekend went on, you could feel the anxiety in the room. People felt a burden as their areas of discipline were being put up on charts and analytics and all these infographics to come to some solution. How do we marshal our knowledge together? How do we dig up the very minutia of data? And will that solve something? And literally at coffee breaks at this retreat, people were literally almost grasping for a grain of sand that they could offer. Is there one fact? Is there one thing we've missed? Is there something we can get to that's gonna bring unity and peace and kind of pull us all together. And as I was sitting there and kind of listening to this dialogue, I'm, I was one of three theologians in the room of all these incredibly bright people. One of the things that became incredibly clear is none of us had the answer. None of us did. As much as we tried to get at it, we just didn't have it. And what I was reminded in our conversations as it went through the weekend was a, a literary scholar by the name of George Steiner years ago um, after he had taught at Harvard, after he had taught at Oxford, I've taught at University of Chicago, you know, some of, these, some of the best and the brightest institutions in the world. He was asked to deliver a lecture on the question of what is the question that is before humanity today. And he made this bold pronouncement in this lecture in 1974 that after all he had seen in all the disciplines, that the universities and our world had embraced a sense of nostalgia for the absolute. There was a drive for some golden yesteryear, some sepia-toned picture like Garrison Keillor's Lake Wobegon where all women are strong, all men are good-looking, and all the children are above average. That we, if we could just get back to that picture, that everything would be fine. And it seemed like the trajectory after World War II was everybody was trying to go back as opposed to see where they were right now. And what Steiner said in this lecture that really caught my attention as I listened to all the conversation and all the data collection that was happening at this think tank meeting was that, as he put it, the major mythologies that have constructed the West today, since the early 19th century, in fact, are trying to fill an emptiness after the death of God in people's lives. We're trying to fill a hole that has somehow been created in our culture today. We've been pouring our systems, pouring our data, pouring our anxiety into this hole, thinking that it can get us at least to a level place. And as he says it, there has been a move in our culture towards what he calls a substitute theology, a substitute theology. And these theologies, whether it's fandom for your best sports team, whether it's the grinding work that you have at your various jobs when you work 70 hours a week, whether it is pushing and kind of scrolling through your media feed, trying to get as many pieces of data as possible. All of these are systems of belief and argumentation that are fending off the reality that we've moved away from God. And as he said this in this lecture, you could hear a pin drop. Hear a pin drop. And as I came out of this meeting over this weekend, it was a similar type of experience. Incredibly bright people, incredibly knowledgeable people asking the right questions. But are we after a substitute theology? Are we after some kind of nostalgia 
as opposed to what Jesus is doing here in the Sermon on the Mount. And what Jesus is asking us to do this morning, as we consider blessed are the meek, is we're called not necessarily to abandon the search for an absolute, not at all. Nor are we to ignore the hard work of researching the facts that are before us, the economic uncertainty, the the tension psychologically and sociologically that are in our day-to-day. We're not supposed to move away from that. But we are supposed to ask, as Jesus does for us, for whom do we do this work? For whom are we working hard? For whom are we pointing our attention? And how are we going to face the challenges of this day and age that we are in? What are the tools and resources that we should be using to get at this anxiety we feel today? Is it a substitute theology we've created that's become our idol? Or is there something else? And Jesus challenges us in this passage to listen deeply to what he's calling us to, the way of the meek. The way of the meek. When I was 14 years old, I did a 115-mile bike ride around the island of Maui. It was kind of this amazing experience. A group of us went over and had this huge bike ride on what's called the Hana Road, for those of you who have been to Maui before. It's basically a road around the island of Maui that has more potholes than road. Um, And if you're on a bicycle and you're 14 years old, and I weighed probably maybe six pounds at that point, I mean, I'm literally bouncing around on these potholes in tropical rain on this thing as we're going. And at the very end of the Hana Road in Maui, there is this beautiful natural wonder called the Seven Sacred Pools. And some of you may have visited this before. These are naturally created pools in volcanic rock where water has poured for centuries down and carved out gorgeous, smooth pools into this rock. And one pool pours into the next and has formed yet another pool and another pool and another pool. And this is what Jesus is trying to do with us as we're now going to dive in to the Sermon on the Mount and particularly the Way of the Meek. It is, how do we become formed and shaped so that God can fill us? How can we be formed and shaped so God can fill us? What are the ways in which we can be better made to be used by God in the world? St. Augustine, in reflecting on this passage of scripture we're looking at this morning, put it this way. He said that everything that we need, the resources for living out the Christian life, are found in Jesus' sermon right here. These are all the precepts, he says, to goes to mold the life that Jesus wants to use. To mold the life that Jesus wants to use. And that's what's at stake here. Augustine goes so far as to say that this molding and shaping that Jesus wants to do with us in this sermon is to make us what he calls lovers of a true and indestructible good. To become lovers of a true and indestructible good. Isn't that a great charge? This is what Jesus wants for us today. To give us the resources to be shaped to be carved out, to be excavated so that the pure water of the gospel can form into us and we can become the lovers of a true and indestructible good found in him. And that's what is before us today. Now to find this true good, we need to recognize what is the real as opposed to the fake. The Treasury Department, uh, for example, when they're kind of training officers to find forgeries, forgery $20 bills, $100 bills, Do not send their officers out to study forgeries. They will spend months, agonizing months, studying a real $20 bill. They'll feel the fiber. They'll look at the ink. They'll look at the space between various lines on the bill. For when they see a fake, after spending so much time with the real, it's instantaneous. You can see a forgery instantly if you've spent enough time with the real. And this is what Jesus wants us to do as well. Have you spent enough time with the real? 
to see a fake when it shows up. So let's begin with the first question that we have this morning is, well, who are the meek? What, is, what does meekness mean? And it's a difficult word to get at today. When we, hear, when we hear meek oftentimes in today's 21st century language, it may not be exactly what Jesus is trying to use. This, this word paus in Greek that is translated as meek here is a, a, a meekness that really is exercising God's strength through his control. Exercising God's strength through his control. Through his control. And let me tell you what I mean by that. The word meek, in our, in our usual connotation that people think about it, is often in a very derogatory way. Sometimes it's like craven pandering. People who um, are trying to seek you know, somebody else's approval, and so they're kind of mousy and kind of keeping back. And so you think of synonyms to, to meek as being like cowardice, or they're afraid, or hiding in the shadows, or you know, kind of cowering in the back. But then there's antonyms that go against this as well that are also problematic. Brashness, boldness, machismo, you know, power. I mean, these kind of words also become problematic. Meekness can also be translated humble. Um, it can be gentle. But sometimes it's helpful when we're looking at scriptural passages to look at how it's used in other ways. And two passages in scripture that are helpful here, Galatians 6, 1 and 1 Peter 3, 15 are helpful. So let me read these two for you. First, Galatians 6, 1. Brothers and sisters, if a man has been caught in any sin, you who are spiritual must restore such in a spirit of gentleness. And it's the same word that's translated as meek. Watching yourself, lest you also be tempted, which shows the tie between gentleness and not thinking too highly of oneself. 1 Peter 3, 15. Set Christ apart in your hearts as the Lord. Always be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks about the reason for the hope that is in you. But do this with gentleness, same word that's translated meek, and fear. And there's a number of other passages as well that use this in this way. And if we gather these verses up, it's contra in contrast to people-pleasing or cowardness, this word meek means a fear of the Lord. A fear of the Lord that's rooted in true gentleness. A fear of the Lord rooted in true gentleness. And if you expand it, what Jesus is reminding us then about being meek is that deep gentleness comes from humility, but it's persistent, it is bold, it is single-minded, and it follows after the path of holiness. It is bold, it is confident, yet it is gentle. It is assured, it is single-focused, yet it is still listening to other people in the process. The way of the meek is not brashness either. It is not trying to move things in your agenda as fast as possible through anxiety and fear. But fear of the Lord calls us to a gentleness in a different way. The reformer Martin Luther, when he was writing about faith in, the, in, in his commentary on Paul's letter to the Romans, put it this way. Faith is a living, bold trust in God's grace. So certain of God's presence that it would risk death a thousand times in trusting in it. Such confidence and knowledge of God's grace makes you happy, joyful, bold in your relationship with God and all creatures. The Holy Spirit makes this happen through faith and because of it you freely, willingly and joyfully do good to everyone. For everyone and serving them, suffering all kinds of things. Love and praise the Lord who shows you such grace. Thus it is impossible to separate faith and works in this way as one separates heat and light from fire. 
Right. So this call to meekness is a living, bold trust in God. Very different than people would think of in how they use meekness today. Well, the second part of this passage that we'll look at is then, well, who inherits the earth? If meekness is this bold trusting in God, well, then what does it mean to be inheritors of the earth as being talked about in Jesus' sermon? For years, my, my, my family and, and I, we lived in Scotland. I, I taught at the University of Glasgow, and we'd get up every once in a while to go up to the highlands of Scotland. And one of the joys that we had of being in that region of the world was walking on what are called public footpaths, public footpaths. Footpaths. And these are paths that go and wander around through the highlands, under the glens, and over the Monroes. And, and you can just follow them. There's little signs literally in the middle of nowhere that just point you this way or this way. And you see the footpaths have been worn in for centuries of people walking these paths. And these public footpaths are a tradition throughout Britain to give people access to all aspects of the, of, of the British Isles. In this way, what had happened was that in the early centuries of the 19th century... Um, 17th through 19th century, people were starting to partition off land, build up walls, buy the land, secure them, and then people couldn't walk from their home to visit a relative or they couldn't get to market to sell their works. This became a problem. And so in 1845, there was a decree that was put all throughout Scotland that there had to be access from shore to shore, from mountain to glen, that you'd be able to get wherever you needed to go without any barrier whatsoever. And this was the establishment of what's called the rights of way the rights of way law. And that meant that every person who wanted to walk from shore to shore to mountain to there could do it. And there could be no private land that could block that. So if you had land, if you had like 10,000 acres of land somewhere, you had to create a public footpath to go right through the middle of your land to allow people to go. And this rights of way was a statement that the land is bigger than us. And it gets to the Scottish tradition, which is that basically the land that we have forms us. We don't form it. It's something God has given us as a gift. And how do we respond deeply to that gift? And in the passage we heard this morning read by Eric as we got started, we hear from Psalm 24 that the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. The earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. And because of this, Jesus is declaring for the meek to, as inheritors of the earth to open up the borders, to open up the land to look for the places where people are blocked, prevented from access of grace, prevented from access of building a life for themselves, and to speak into those spaces where people are prevented and restricted from receiving God's glory. Another example of this that we see from the prophetic literature that Jesus is using as he talks about this is from the prophet Zechariah. In prophet Zechariah, you have the people of God have been put in exile for over 70 years in Babylonian captivity. And during these 70 years, the people of God have been separated from Jerusalem, the holy city, from the holy temple in the midst of that. And as an entire generation has been born and grown up in captivity, they've heard the songs and the stories of Jerusalem. In their minds, it's this glorious place. The temple is beautiful. And they've recited these songs and they've sung them and, they've, and parents have passed them on to their children in the midst of this slavery. Then after 70 years, they're released. And they're able to go back to this place they've only heard about in song, this idealized place. And when they get there, Jerusalem is decimated. Its marauding tribes have come through. The temple is destroyed. The city is laid in ruin. And the people ask, well, then what are we supposed to do now? Who are we supposed to become in the midst of this desolate, ruined place? 
and prophets like Zechariah are raised up to help them rebuild the city. In the second chapter of Zechariah, Zechariah sends out a messenger with a measuring line to reconstruct the walls of the city, to get the boundaries in place so we can know what is Jerusalem and what is not Jerusalem. And in a sense, also to put up gates to protect from this ever happening again, which seems like a logical thing to do. But in Zechariah 2, beginning in verse 1 through 5, we hear this amazing statement of God at this practice. I lifted my eyes up and I saw beholding a man with a measuring line in his hand. And then I said, where are you going? And he said to me to measure Jerusalem, to see its breadth and its length. And behold, an angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said, Run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude and men, women, and cattle that will be in it, and I will be her wall of fire that surrounds it, says the Lord, and I will be her glory within. In this passage, God is making a pretty profound statement about borders and about walls about things that prevent people, things that lock in, people that create gates and try to prevent access, and even the people who try to control access to certain things. The full shape of the kingdom of God is being prophesied here and moved into Jesus' statement about inheriting the entire earth, is that it's going to be beyond our ability to limit. We may try to ring fence who is in the kingdom of God. We may try to do statements about this person is in and this person is out. But God is having nothing of it. The kingdom of God is exploding in growth, expanding beyond our, even our imagination. People of all races, all tongues, all cultures are going to come and populate this glorious city that God is providing for us. And the measuring lines that we will use to determine who's in and who's out will always fall short. They'll always fall short. The goal, as we hear in the passage, is not to look at see where the border is to know who's in and who's out, but to turn and face who is in the center who is calling us. And this is the direction of the grace and glory of God. I will be your glory within, says the Lord. And Jesus is doing a similar thing when we inherit the earth. It is a call for us to remember that as we see political divides erupting right now with a new day in America, as we see unbelievable tension across our globe as people are trying to figure out their own identities in the midst of a changing time economically, politically, sociologically. That in the midst of this, God's people are called to remember to whom we give our allegiance to. What does it mean to be people who love God with our heart, mind, soul, and strength? How do we center ourselves in a decentering time? We need to seek the glory of God within more than seeking our borders without. And to inherit the earth in its, all its entirety as the meek who are bold and persistent and gentle in the way we live into the world, it means that we sit ourselves in a posture of worship like we're doing right now and allow the overflowing call of God to pour into us, to shape us, and fill us for the sake of others. This is what it means to get to the way of the Lord. This is the Lord's rights of way to create public footpaths through our world, to make the way straight and to walk that path with the Lord. Our tendency in times of anxiety is to get to okay as fast as possible. What is the path to get to okay? How do we get there? How do we relieve the anxiety we're feeling right now? 
And the danger is we can go to one of two extremes. We can either try to say that, hey, let's solve this as fast as possible, or let's just wait till heaven shows up. <laughs> let's just wait till heaven shows up. But we have work here and now. We have work here and now. And the way of the meek that Jesus is speaking of is a confidence in God's swift, sure hand. That the grace that God is providing in these uneasy times may be difficult for us to see, but when two or three are gathered in the name of Jesus and the Holy Spirit's empowering, we can discern and walk with confidence that God is walking with us, calling us to God's people to evangelize and to share this gospel throughout the world. So what do we do with this? What's our next step then? If we are the meek, if we're called to this way, and if we're called to walk into a world that has been claimed by God, not with borders, not with boundaries, not with gates, not with locks, not with different ways of, of measuring lines that kind of separate people. If the expansiveness of the kingdom is creating rights of way that are plowing through all these places, what's our job then this morning? Where do we move next? Well, let me offer a couple of thoughts on this that kind of pour literally like the waters pouring in the seven sacred pools down the rest of Jesus' sermon. Because Jesus is going to be calling us as the meek to move into areas of righteousness and to acts of mercy that we'll be hearing about as the sermon series continues on. So let me talk about mercy as one of the ways to kind of be thinking through as we prepare for coming attractions for the rest of this series. So first of all, the way of the meek is to have a forgiving spirit. To be the people of the meek is to have a forgiving spirit. To act in meekness is to draw on acts of mercy with a non-retaliating spirit in a world that seems to want to hold onto a scorecard. You did this to me. You did this to them. You did this to them. A forgiving spirit is not a forgetful spirit. A forgiving spirit knows when hurt has happened, knows the sorrows we experience, but still moves forward in the meek assuredness of God to wrap our arms around people in grace and to seek reconciliation whenever possible. It's not always possible, but whenever possible. To be people who act in mercifulness and in righteousness as the meek means that we do not accept self-vindication as the goal of all that we do. When we have a breakdown between people, between institutions, between nations, it means that we seek a forgiving spirit above all else. That is mercifulness in the way of the meek. Who are the people in your life right now that it's hard to forgive? What are the stories in your life that have been part of you, that have animated you, that have caused you pain and suffering that you cannot lay down at the altar of God? This morning, as the service continues after this, after we, after we move into another season of, of this season of worship, there are books here from the prayer books. I really encourage you not to leave the sanctuary with things you're dragging around um, and, and try to have a forgiving spirit as the beginning today. What do you need to lay down this morning to move into the way of the meek as somebody who shows God's forgiveness in the world? What is that for you? Secondly, the way of the meek also demonstrates a measureless act of love that comes from the Lord, not just from ourselves. A measureless act of love that comes from the Lord, not just ourselves. To be people of meekness is to show and demonstrate righteousness and mercy around the world and to other people in ways that are so radical that it will surprise people. The people we forgive, the people we respond to, the people we open the borders to will shock the culture that we're in. 
What does it mean to be people who act in mercy that way? This boundless act of love that God calls us to. One of the great examples of this I find in literature is from Tolkien's wonderful Fellowship of the Ring. And there's this wonderful example in this wonderful story where at the beginning, Frodo, this young hobbit in the story that many of you are familiar with, he gets his ring of great power, as we, we know. And Frodo learns from Gandalf that this is the ring of power, that in, if it goes into evil hands, all of Middle-earth is going to fall. And he's being followed and chased by this little beast called Gollum, who's seeking this ring as well and wants it, and it's kind of twisted his life over the years. And Frodo wonders aloud that if they could have just gotten rid of Gollum earlier, killed him, been rid of him, then maybe so much of the story would have been different. We wouldn't have to be chased and perplexed by this guy. Let's just get him out of here. Let's just wipe him off the face of the earth, and maybe that'll solve all of my problems. And then Gandalf turns to Frodo, and he says, that is not the way that we need to do. We need to show mercy. And Frodo responds, mercy? What are you talking about? And Gandalf says, it is a pity that Bilbo did not in any way get rid of this vile creature when he had the chance. And Gandalf replies, it is pity that stayed his hand, pity and mercy, not the need to strike without need. And Bilbo was well rewarded, Frodo, for he had so little hurt from evil and escaped in the end because of that ownership of the ring. But Gollum deserves death, says Frodo. And then Gollum, and then, then, then Gandalf makes this statement, deserves death? I dare say he does. Many that live deserve death. And some that die deserve life. Can you give life to them? Then don't be too eager to deal out death and judgment. For even the very wise cannot see all the ends of things. I have not much hope that Gollum can be cured before he dies, but there is a chance for it. And he is bound up in the fate of things. My heart tells me he has some part to play in this, for good or for ill before the end. And when that comes, the mercy and the pity that Bilbo showed to save his life may be the fate of us all. And for those of you who know, spoiler alert, Gollum does play a pretty big role in solving the evil that is part of our world. And it is mercy for those who think deserve no mercy that may be our salvation in the end. What is the measureless act of love that we as Bethany are called to to respond to the world today? In what way do we ask who is our neighbor in such a way that shocks the neighbors around us? What are, and who are the people that we're going to bind our lives to? They're going to require boundless acts of love that only Jesus can provide us to give. They're going to be so different than the way the culture calls us to that we will need the Holy Spirit every day to make that love real. This is what it means to depend as the meek on the way of Jesus. And lastly, to be in the way of the meek, to have a forgiving spirit, to have boundless acts of love, is to remember that this spontaneous outflow that we have of the heart always turns back to our worship of the Lord. In what way, shape, or form have you boundaried your heart off from truly listening to what God has in store for you today? As you come into the sanctuary, as you're listening online, are there parts of you that have become hardened of heart to listening to what God has in store? Have you been disappointed so many times that hearing God's promises even now seems to hurt more than help? Are there ways that we as a church can wrap our arms around you to soften your heart, 
to hear again the promises that God has? Have we become a society that's been so given over to cynicism and to siloed social media conversations in echo chambers that we can't hear God's voice anymore? And the Holy Spirit doesn't want that for us today. If that is you, turn your heart again to Jesus. Bring and lay those things down that are separating you from that story. Because the way of the meek is a gentle laying down of those barriers. The way of the meek is a reminder that Jesus is still here. The way of the meek shows the world that this is not over yet. That optimism isn't just merely fancy, but it is hope that is bound up in the love and the promise and the charity of the hands and feet of Jesus alive in the world. The way of the meek is your story, it is our story, and is the calling of Jesus in our lives. So now as we turn our hearts to worship again, my call to you is to soften your hearts. Do you need to lay some things down that have kept you from meekness, that have made you cynical, that have made you angry, that have made you disappointed or fearful in this day and age? And if that is you, please use this time to turn your hearts to Christ. Write them down in our book so our prayer teams can pray for you. And let's join our hearts now in worship as we come together.